All right, y'all come in and grab a seat. For now, you're far away, but soon you'll be very close. Very, very close, like weirdly close, like makes me uncomfortable close. But today, you're in the normal spot. Thank you for being here. Please excuse our mess as we are doing some stage renovations. Let me uh, pray for us, and then we will get into the lesson today. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, the Reformation and uh, just this return to the Scriptures. We confess that your word liberates us. It gives us life. It gives us freedom. And so may you keep us tethered to that. Uh, We pray that as we enter the time in this study of uh, learning more about the Reformation for the next several weeks, that would encourage our faith, that we would... uh, Uh, remember kind of these essential core things when it comes to things like justification by faith alone or uh, the sufficiency of Scripture or whatever it might be. So we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Today is a very special day. It is Martin Luther Day, okay? Now, this is my favorite figure in church history other than Jesus, right? This is my favorite figure in church history, Martin Luther. You'll notice that your uh, notes are usually three pages. Today, they're like 12, okay? Half of those are not something that we're gonna go over today. I've included a short sermon by Martin Luther for you to take home and read if you want to, okay? You don't have to, but if you want to, what I've tried to do is I've tried to say out of all the works I could have you read by Luther, we could have you read The Bondage of the Will, or we could have you read Table Talk, or we could have you read all these other works, I thought that this short sermon best encapsulates the central thesis of Luther's theology. So if you want to read that later, you can. Don't freak out, though. We're not going to read that whole thing like during this class or whatever. We're just going to go over the lesson, but it should be fun. We probably won't have time for questions because, again, this is my guy, and so I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about Luther. Okay, my mother-in-law actually today brought a Martin Luther bobblehead. I was going to put it up on stage, but you know, idolatry, and so I didn't. And uh, but she's got one, and so uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of this guy. Now, this is going to be one of the most influential theologians in church history. A few things to say about that: the most influential theologian in church history is who? We've beat this into you. It, yeah, yes. In church history, meaning outside of the Bible. Yes, Jesus is bigger, you know, than the Beatles, than the Beatles. It's Augustine, right? It is St. Augustine. Outside of the Bible, the most influential figure in church history, hands down, St. Augustine. Number two is gonna be Martin Luther because everything Protestant will go back to him. Number two is not Aquinas because only some Catholics follow Aquinas and no Catholics up till his day followed him, obviously, because he didn't exist. Uh, But everybody after the Reformation is gonna be influenced by Luther. Even guys that will change his thought slightly, the Reformed tradition with Calvin and these kind of guys, they're still gonna be influenced by Martin Luther. Another thing I need to say, I shouldn't have to say this, Martin Luther is a different person than Martin Luther King Jr., okay? You, you would be surprised how much when you talk on Martin Luther where people are like, the civil rights leader. No, the civil rights leader was named after this German guy, okay? That's where the name Martin Luther comes from. Luther, here's what's interesting about Luther. <clears throat> the guy that's going to, in a sense, bring down the corrupt Roman Catholic Church and the guy that's gonna usher in everything we think of as Protestantism today and even things like freedom of religion and some of these other things, isn't, it wasn't a king, wasn't a prince, wasn't some stately figure. It was a foul-mouthed, often drunk, super insecure German monk. That is gonna be the guy that's gonna transform world history. So, let me tell you why he's a big deal, okay? Why is he important? We're gonna take a little, a little quiz here, so go ahead and raise your hand. Who in here likes the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Okay. Who in here likes not being under the authority of the Pope? Who in here likes having a Bible in your own language? Who in here thinks that the Bible is all we need to really know God? 
Yes, there's other helpful info, but the Bible is all you need to know, God. Who in here thinks that marriage and intimacy are gifts from God and that pastors can be married? Oh, I do. Huh? See that wedding ring? I obviously think that. Who in here thinks that all Christians are equally close to God because of Christ? Again, all the hands. Who in here is anything other than Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox? Okay. Who in here likes that you don't have to go to purgatory before you can go to heaven? You have Martin Luther to thank for that. Now you say, no, Zach, I don't have Martin Luther to thank for that. I have the Bible to thank for that. You don't have the Bible at this point in church history. It's, you don't have, it is in Latin and you don't even read whatever the vernacular is. If you live in England, you don't even read English. So you don't have a Bible that you can access in your own language and even if you did, you wouldn't know how to read. That's what it's like in the Middle Ages. So we have a whole lesson on the Middle Ages. I'd encourage you to listen to that. But just again, a few reminders here. You didn't have a Bible in your own language. Even if you did, you couldn't read, so it didn't matter. The only thing you could learn by is by looking at stained glass, which is learning the Bible like in picture book or having a priest talk to you outside of church in the vernacular. Services were all in Latin, so you didn't know what was going on. You didn't get to have wine in communion, only the bread. Remember, in Roman Catholic theology, the bread and the wine are not bread and wine. They cease to be that, and they are the actual material body and blood of Jesus, okay? And so they didn't allow the wine to be had by the laity because they're not gonna pass around this cup and spill the Lord on the floor. You don't wanna risk that if that's his blood. So you would only get to take of the bread, okay? Don't worry, though, because there was this theology of what is called concomitance, that the whole Christ is in both elements, so when you take of the bread, you're taking of the body and blood of Christ because Christ is, is one person. And also when you take of the wine, you're partaking of the body and blood. So you had concomitants with that, okay? Remember that the church was corrupt in both doctrine and practice in several areas. You couldn't go directly to God, whereas the Bible's gonna say there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What they believed is that you had to go through a priest. If you were the laity, you were second tier, second tier Christian, you had to go through the clergy before you could go to the mediator who is Christ. And they believed, and this is gonna be a big thing for Luther, they believed that salvation was a cooperation of God's grace and man's effort. So this very famous phrase from the Middle Ages, faciendibus quod in seis Deus non denegat gratiam. God does not deny grace to the man who does what is in him. So this might be the theology that some of you have if you grew up legalistically. What they taught in the Middle Ages is that grace was that God gave you what you lacked after you did your best. Grace was, I'm gonna do all the good stuff I can and I know I'll fall short and so God will give me a little extra. So if you need, a th- if you need to be 100% righteous, I'll do 80% and grace is God making up the other 20%, okay? What Luther and the reformers are gonna do is they're gonna tear that notion to shreds and they're gonna say that's not grace. Grace has nothing to do with you. Grace is God doing all of it. God does the 100%. You're in the negative. God doesn't reward those who do their best. You can't do your best because you're dead in your sin. God has to do all the good stuff for you. Here's here's Christian theology. We're just summed up Protestant theology very simply. You do all the bad stuff and God does all the good stuff. There you go. Pretty simple. Okay, pretty simple. Now, let's get into his early life. Martin Luther, here he is. First thing you need to know about Luther, his name is not actually Luther. (gasps) What a scandal. Okay? His last name in German was Luder, Martin Luder, not Luther, L-U-D-E-R. Where does he get the name Luther? Well, at this time, if you were a man of erudition, you were a man of learning, it was popular to take either a Greek or Latin title for your last name. So what Luther did is he went by the name Eleutherius, okay, which means liberator, 
okay? Eleutherius, and you get the word Luther from Eleutherius. So his last name's not actually Luther, it's Luther, but it was changed because he took on this, this, uh, this academic title. A lot of people will do this. So uh, Luther's best buddy, kind of the Robin to his Batman, is a guy named Philip Melanchthon. Well, his last name is not Melanchthon, he's German. His last name was Schwarzerd, which means black earth. And so he took on Melanchthon, which also means black earth, again, because that's what was popular to do at the time. There's another reformer who has an excellent last name. His name is John or Johannes, Echolampadius. And all that means is house lamp, because his original name, House Shine, was house lamp. So what these guys are doing is they're taking on, you know, all these titles and they become their name. So I might take on something like Zach, the well-armed, or something like that, and that would become my Latin or Greek title and Latin or Greek name. Luther was born on November the 10th, 1483 in Eisleben, Germany. His mother's name was Margaret, and his father's name was Hans, which is such a great German name. That's like the standard German name, kind of, I feel like, Hans. Hans was a coal miner. Keep that in mind uh, later on. That's gonna be important for uh, a small aspect of Luther's life, but Hans was a coal miner, Luther was one of about eight siblings, only four of which would make it to adulthood. So if you remembered in our lecture on the Middle Ages, the death rate was 50% just growing up, okay? We think a lot about death rates today in light of a pandemic. The death rate of just living was 50%, okay? Something would kill you. And then but to, to become a, an adult, people didn't live till they were 80. I mean, if you got to live to your 30s and 40s, you had lived a, like a ripe old age, okay? If you had a little bit of gray in your beard, you were, uh, you were killing it. Martin Luther's dad was extremely overbearing with young Martin. Luther's upbringing was very harsh and legalistic. He reports of being whipped at school for failing to do his lessons, and supposedly his teachers and dad beat him so badly that it occasionally drew blood. You will find that this psychologically will affect Luther. Luther will see God the way he saw his dad. His dad is always disappointed in him. He can never do enough in his dad's eyes, and so he will read the same thing onto God. By the way, that's not just true with Luther. That's true with all of us. How you see your parents will affect the way that you view God. It shouldn't. It should be the other way around. You should look at your parents in light of God, but, but psychologically, this would play, uh, play very much into Luther's personal life. He almost died at the age of 19. I've often wondered what the world would be like had he died at 19. A dagger pierced his leg and cut an artery while traveling on a journey, but his friend was able to get Luther to a doctor in time to save his life. His dad made enough money to send Luther to study, uh, to study law in 1501 at the University of Erfurt. The hope was that he would become a lawyer, which would help his family financially. Interestingly enough, both Luther and Calvin originally were training to be lawyers. They were training to be attorneys. The skill sets between an attorney and a pastor are very similar. They're interpreting texts, they're making arguments, they're trying to persuade audiences, whether it's a jury or it's a congregation. They're conforming normal life to higher standards of law, whether that law is God's law or civil law. So a lot of these, uh, these skills you'll actually see with Luther and Calvin, the reason they're good at interpreting the Bible is because they've practiced interpreting during, during, uh, doing hermeneutics in a lot of secular documents. Here's gonna be the turning point where he's gonna turn away from being a, a lawyer. In 1505, Luther was traveling back to the university when he was caught in a thunderstorm. A lightning bolt actually almost struck him. It actually hit pretty close to him. And he cried out to St. Anne. Why did he cry out to St. Anne? St. Anne is the patron saint of miners. By that, I don't mean kids who are under 18. By that, I mean like his dad, a coal miner, people that work in the mines. And so he cries out, St. Anne, if you will save me from this storm, I will become a monk. He lives through the storm and decides to keep his promise by enrolling in an Augustinian, 
named after Augustine, monastery, against his father's wishes. So that's gonna really disappoint his already disappointed dad, that instead of being this attorney that can make a bunch of money for the family, that his dad's been spending all this money to send him to school, he's gonna become this poor monk. But he's gonna be in an Augustinian monastery, so he's gonna be studying Augustine left and right, which is gonna be really helpful for his theology later. Now let's talk about Luther as a monk. So now Luther becomes a monk. By the way, if you've never seen the movie Luther by Joseph, Joseph Fiennes, I think it is, who plays Luther, it's an excellent movie. It's not high budget, but the content's excellent, and it starts with Luther just trying to earn his salvation as a monk. The, 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 the movie opens up with this sparkling clean floor, and Luther is on all fours just scrubbing the floor of the church as hard as he can because that is Luther. Luther is trying to earn his salvation. Luther realizes that God has us born into sin because of Adam, and yet he demands that we be perfect and we can't, and then he sends us to hell. This is Luther's theology, and by the way, that theology up so far, what everything I just said is true, okay? So Luther doesn't know what to do. Luther is trying with all his might to do the right stuff, hoping that it will please this angry God. And so Luther takes even being a monk to the extreme. Okay? He goes to confession so much that, other, that, that, that Catholic priests have to tell him to go away and come back when you have something real to confess. Because he does this. He sits there and he says, you know what? I've had these lustful thoughts and I've had pride and I didn't pray four hours yesterday like I should have and I didn't do all these things. And then he steps out of the confessional and he thinks, did I really mean that? Was I really sorry? If you're someone in here who has prayed the sinner's prayer over and over and over again, hoping that God will save you because of your emotion attached to the prayer, you're like Luther. Luther thinks, did I really confess? If I confess, why did I still do it? If I'm really repentant, why do I want to sin again? And so Luther is struggling with that. He said, if someone could have earned salvation through monkery, which is a great word, it was I. Luther, to distract him, is sent by one of his leaders to Rome to deliver letters on a nine-month trip. For this, he earned 10,000 years off of purgatory, which he graciously gave to his grandparents, okay? He eventually received his doctorate and became a professor at the newly founded University of Wittenberg. Uh, He became a professor of Bible and theology. Now, it was while lecturing on the Psalms and Romans that Luther would have his big spiritual breakthrough. Now, a lot of people know about the attachment of Luther to Romans. They don't know that uh, what really began Luther's spiritual journey of finally understanding what the Bible taught about salvation was actually the study of the Psalms, all of which he had memorized, by the way. And it was in studying the Psalms that he realized the psalmist is in a covenant relationship with God, but the psalmist is struggling. Luther didn't think you can struggle. God demands that you be perfect. The psalmist, though, knows God, but is also saying, God, you've betrayed me. Why are you so far from me? My enemies have overtaken me. This honest relationship, this struggle, these doubts back and forth was very encouraging for Luther as he read those with the psalmist. And then Luther had eventually what is now called the Tower Experience that he writes about, where uh, he is studying Romans, specifically Romans 117, which says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Now look at Luther's understanding of this and then I'm gonna explain it. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit, my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. He's saying, I hated God. 
Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God, that phrase, had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Here's what he's saying. Luther used to hate, because this, this phrase occurs all over the New Testament, the phrase the righteousness of God. Because he thought that it meant the righteousness whereby God damns sinners. Righteousness, the righteousness of God means that God is righteous, and so if you're a sinner, you go to hell, okay? And there are times where that text in context does mean that, that phrase. But Luther realized that the phrase also means something else, especially in Romans. It's not just the holiness by which God judges sinners. It is the grace that God gives sinners. It is the fact that God sees us as just, just by having faith in Christ. Righteousness of God isn't just that God is holy and he damns sinners. It's that if you will have faith in Christ, God will see you as holy. God will see you as just. That by having faith in Christ, you go, in God's eyes, from being a sinner whom he hates to a child that he loves, okay? That's what he's saying. I used to hate this phrase. Now I realize that what do I have to, Luther is trying to find a forgiving and loving God. He's become a monk. He's working hard. He's trying to confess all his sins. He's going to Rome on pilgrimages. He's doing everything that he can to make God love him. And he finally has this breakthrough, which is I cannot do anything to make God love me. God sees me as just, just by having faith in Christ. That's it. It is simple, it is sweet, it is easy. And he says, upon that realization, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the gates of heaven, okay? Now, that's Luther's personal journey. It's about to get spicy because it's about to involve other people. Let's talk about the role of indulgences going on in Luther's day. The Roman Catholic Church, which is the most powerful institution in the world, the Pope can use what's called an interdict and he can send an entire nation to hell at this time. An interdict forbids priests from giving the sacraments to the laity. So if France doesn't step in line, the Pope can send France to hell, which might not have been a terrible thing, it's France. But he has that power, very, very powerful. And one of the things that the church is doing is they are selling what are called indulgences. What are indulgences? Indulgences are a good work that you can do by giving money to the Roman Catholic Church and they will give you a certificate. And what that certificate will do is it will allow you to have less years in purgatory, okay? So the Roman Catholic Church is trying to build St. Peter's Basilica, which you can see today. It's this huge, amazing castle, uh, you know, structure, temple-looking thing, and it's incredible, and it took them over 100 years to complete, and the one, part of the way that they funded that was through selling indulgences. So in Catholic theology, when you die, you don't go straight to heaven. You gotta go to purgatory first, right? You gotta burn off all the bad stuff before you go into God's presence. And, you know, depending on how terrible you were depends on how long you spend in purgatory. If you're in purgatory, good news, you're still a Christian, you're gonna make it to heaven, you just gotta burn off all the yuck first. Well, what you can do is you can do good deeds to get you some time off of purgatory, and one of those good deeds is that you can buy an indulgence, okay? You can buy an indulgence. So, I can give money to the Catholic Church so they can build their big building, I get a certificate that says, Zach Lee now gets 100 years off of purgatory, Awesome, I can endorse that to someone else. I can give it to my grandparents, whatever it might be, right? So let's say my, let's say my uh, you know, great-grandma was a terrible racist or something, I can, I can give her that indulgence and give her some time out of purgatory. <clears throat> and so that's what's going on. So there's this salesman 
that is going around where Luther is, and his name is Johann Tetzel, John Tetzel, and he is kind of the used car salesman of indulgences, okay? He's like the, you know, come on down to John Tetzel's indulgences, you can't beat my prices anywhere, he's one of those kind of guys. He gets that big floppy, you know, air guy on the side of the highway to draw you in, and he has all these jingles, right? Like you would have today for, you know, Clay Cooley or something. He has like, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He has that kind of stuff. He'll tell you what terrible sins that his indulgences can cover. He said that even if you had violated the Virgin Mary herself, his indulgences could uh, get you time off of purgatory. Okay, so he's like the used car salesman and he's abusing indulgences. You need to understand, Luther originally is still very Catholic. He's not against indulgences when he posts his 95 thesis yet. He eventually will be. He's, he's against their abuse at this time. So Tetzel's going around, stealing all this money from people, selling all these indulgences. Luther's just had this spiritual breakthrough and he's like, something seems wrong here, okay? Something seems off. So on October 31st, 1517, on uh, Halloween, 1517, Luther posts his 95 points of debate with the Catholic Church on the door at the Castle Church there in Wittenberg. Now, this is not a revolutionary act. This is like the church's bulletin board. So you would take, you know, your business card or whatever, and you would nail it up, you know, rotary night, and you'd nail it up on the church door. That was pretty normal. So Luther is trying to have an internal debate just with other theologians. In fact, he posts his 95 thesis in Latin so the laity can't read it but somebody takes his 95 thesis, translates it into German, and then it starts spreading, okay? And then it starts spreading. Some examples from the 95 thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Not that you just pay, not that you just pay money for an indulgence and say, oh God, I've repented. Your whole life should be repentance. You could even buy indulgences for future sins, which is amazing to me. You're like, I'm going on spring break in two weeks, so I'm gonna need a big indulgence, right? That's thesis one. They preach man-made doctrines who say that it's so soon as the coin jingles in the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. Thesis 27. Who's that directed against? Tetzel. It's directed against Tetzel with his little jingles and his used car salesman. Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of indulgence preachers, he would rather that St. Peter's church should go to ashes than it should be built up with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. Thesis 50. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God, thesis 62, okay? So Luther posts this. He has his own spiritual breakthrough. He posts this. Luther didn't think that's when he got saved, by the way. Luther thought that he was saved at his baptism. He's still very Lutheran and very Catholic, but he has had this conversion experience, if you will, and now Luther's gonna get into trouble. So now's where it gets spicy. So everybody take a big breath, and we're gonna see this crazy monk transform the world. Okay, here we go. Uh, th- this, uh, these rumors, these theses, eventually get all the way to the Pope, and a man named Cardinal Thomas Cajetan was sent to get a revocation from Luther, but Luther would not recant. So he was given a chance to revoke, to uh, revoco, to uh, repent and turn away from his position by this cardinal. I mean, a cardinal stands right under the Pope. That's the next in line uh, in as far as authority in the Roman Catholic Church, and Luther will not recant. So he's challenged to a dispute, to a debate, what's called the Leipzig Disputation, with a scholar named John Eck, who's brilliant, who's an expert in canon law. And uh, Luther has the better arguments at the debate, but he loses the debate, okay? Luther knows Bible more, but that's not how Eck approaches it. Eck is a better debater, okay? What Eck does is he simply shows at the debate that there was a guy that we learned about last week that Jared taught of, taught about, named Jan Hus, John Hus, and that Luther is holding the same views as John Huss, 
and John Huss has already been condemned. Look at the simple logic of that. Luther, you're saying, you've got an open Bible right now, I don't care. Do you agree with this condemned heretic? Is your position the same as this guy that's already condemned? Well, then QED, I've won the debate. And so Eck wins the debate because he knows how to set up the debate better than Luther. He shows that Luther has sympathies with John Huss, who's already been condemned, you know, for promoting these heretical doctrines, such as things we would all really love and hold today as Protestants, predestination, the corruption of the Catholic Church, and that one could go directly to God without the aid of the church, okay? You see, what uh, Huss's ideas and Luther's ideas do is they challenge the power of the Roman Catholic Church, so he gets into trouble, okay? And because of that, Luther gets excommunicated by the Pope in 1520. But because Luther is sassy, and he, he doesn't have time for that, he burns the bull of excommunication publicly in the town square. So the most powerful man on earth has called for your repentance and sent you a papal bull saying you're going to hell, and Luther takes it, calls everyone in town, lights a big fire, and throws the papal bull on the fire. Okay? So he's, sat, he, he's not like many preachers today that are becoming increasingly part of the cult of niceness and don't want to offend people. Luther's very offensive, and he needs to be. To quote Spurgeon, Bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards, okay? Luther hits people hard, but he has to hit them hard or the Reformation would not have happened, okay? Joel Osteen would not have led the Reformation, okay? You have to have somebody who's strong, and that's who Luther is. Listen to this uh, section from this uh, excommunication. It's called exerge domine. Catholic uh, pronouncements from the Pope are named after the first few phrases in Latin and that's what this is. That means rise up, O Lord, exerge domine. Or there's other ones like nostra aetate. They're always named after the, the first line in Latin. But here's what it says. Arise, O Lord, and judge your own cause. The wild boar from the forest, that's Luther, seeks to destroy it, meaning your vineyard, O God. And every wild beast feeds upon it. Against the Roman church, you warned, lying teachers are rising, introducing ruinous sects and drawing upon themselves speedy doom. Their tongues are a fire, a restless evil full of deadly poison. They have bitter zeal, contention in their hearts, and boast and lie against the truth. Moreover, because the preceding errors and many others are contained in the books or writings of Martin Luther, we likewise condemn, reprobate, and reject completely the books and all the writings and sermons of the said Martin, whether in Latin or in any other language, containing the said errors or any one of them. And we wish them to be regarded as utterly condemned, reprobated, and rejected. As far as Martin himself is concerned, we can, without any further citation or delay, proceed against him to his condemnation and damnation as one whose faith is notoriously suspect and, in fact, a true heretic, with the full severity of each and all the above penalties and censures, okay? So you get that written against you by the most powerful man in the world, and you're like, get some, right? Come and take it, and you drop it on the fire, Okay. So Luther now gets called, not only, but so he's already resisted the Pope, he's now gonna get called before the civil authorities, okay? He's gonna be called to, a, to what is called in 1521, the Diet of Worms. Now that's not Diet of Worms, that's not something you eat. A diet is like a, uh, a meeting or a small council, and Worms is the city where they're gonna meet in. And there he faces a guy named, wait for it, John Eck, but it's a different John Eck, okay? That's weird to me. A lot of scholars miss this, kind of to their embarrassment. The John Eck that Luther fights at the Leipzig Disputation is different than a later John Eck. If I'm Luther at this point, I'm like, I'm just gonna stay away from anybody named John Eck. If they have the same first name and last name as another guy who's already fought me, do something else, okay? Yeah, appeal somehow, get a different guy. There's a different John Eck. And at this council, at this diet, Luther is asked to repent and forsake his views or be condemned. 
He asks for a day to think about it. We don't know why to this day. Scholars debate. He says, okay, you're asking me to repent or be condemned. May I have a day to think about it, okay? So they grant him a day to think about it, to pray about it, to wrestle through it, and he comes back the next day resolved and says this. These are very famous famous, uh, section here in uh, Martin Luther's life. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scripture or by clear reason, for I trust neither Pope nor counsel alone, since it is well known that they've often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have cited, for my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since to act against one's conscience is neither right nor safe, okay? Now, some of you don't understand what's happening, what a big deal this is. At this point in history, Luther is the most powerful man in the world. He's resisted the Pope, the highest authority in church stuff, and now he is looking the emperor in the face, the the Roman emperor, and saying, the holy Roman emperor, and saying, no. He's resisted the highest civil authority and the highest religious authority. He is the most powerful, gutsy man on earth at this point, okay? And because of this, he's going to be killed. He knows that if he does this, he's going to die for the faith, and he says, okay, I'm gonna do it. He's scared, but he's faithful, okay? Now, at this point, he's condemned as a heretic, which already means he's going to hell. That's pretty bad, right? Out of all the things you wanna do in life, not going to hell should be on your bucket list. But now, he can also be killed civilly, okay? But thankfully, Luther has friends that can help him out. Knowing that Luther would be condemned after the meeting, Frederick the Wise, who's this leader, who's Luther's friend, had Luther kidnapped. So Luther's riding back and he's like, I'm gonna be killed. And all these knights show up and kidnap him. And he's like, it's happening, okay? It's happening, I knew it, right? They throw a bag over his head and take his cell phone. It's very taken. They bring him to the Wartburg Castle so that he wouldn't be killed. So these guys kidnapping him are actually friends. They have to do this to hide him so the authorities cannot find Luther because if they find Luther, they will have him killed. While he's at the castle, he grows a beard, amen. Starts dressing like a knight. Starts wearing 5'11 and grunt style t-shirts and stuff, I guess. And translates the entire New Testament into German by himself in just 10 weeks while undergoing spiritual attack, okay? So he is, there is no German translation of the Bible. Remember, everything's in Latin. So what he's doing is he's translating from Greek. He's using Erasmus' Greek New Testament we learned about last week. And he is using that to by himself translate the entire New Testament into German. Eventually, he'll translate the entire Old Testament into German as well. And Luther's Bible will become this hallmark of the German language, just like the King James Bible is a hallmark of English language, okay? Luther, though, being a very superstitious man. Here's what I mean by superstitious. Luther is a medieval man. That's hard for us to think of today. Okay? In the same way that Augustine is the bridge between the early church and the Middle Ages, Luther is the bridge between the Middle Ages and the Reformation, but Luther is still very medieval. Okay? So when I get sick, you know what I do? I just take some medicine because I'm a modern man. If I go out in the woods, I don't expect to get attacked by a ghoul or a demon or a ghost. Luther does. Okay? Luther expects when he's sick, God is mad at him. Luther expects when he goes in the woods, some sort of gremlin is going to show up and you know, try to tempt him or something, some sort of seductress, some sort of enchantress will show. That's how Luther thinks, he's a medieval man. So one point, he's at the Wartburg Castle and a dog runs into the castle that he doesn't know and he's convinced that the dog is a demon. So he takes it and he throws it out the window and kills the demon dog, okay? Again, this is very, Luther's under intense spiritual attack, which you can imagine if you're like the one guy who's trying to get people back to the Bible against the entire world, the devil has your number. So is Luther going through real spiritual attack? Probably. But also, and there's a a theologian named Philip Carey that I think makes a good case here, Luther's devil, in a sense, is also Luther's brilliant intellect turned in against itself. 
He is the one who's causing himself to doubt. He knows all the other counter arguments for all his arguments. And so Luther is a very tormented soul, very anxious, very insecure, very wrestling with his salvation all the time, okay? In 1525, he married a former nun. Now, I love that. Former monk, renounces his vows of celibacy, marries a former nun named Katie, who will also renounce her vows of celibacy, and they will get married. In 1525, he married a former nun who had been smuggled away from her convent in a fish barrel, okay? So when we think back to hygiene in the Middle Ages, it's not as good as it is today, okay? That is, that is we, we've, we've gone away from good thinking philosophy. We've gone away from moral living. We've got, but we have showers, and what an incredible invention that is of the modern era her name was Katharina von Bora, Catherine von Bora, whom Luther called Lord Katie and my rib, all right, as a reference to the Adam and Eve story. He was 41 and she was 26 when they got married, okay, kind of a player. That was pretty common back then. Those are big age gaps today. That was common back then. To prevent Roman Catholic rumors about his marriage, they had to have someone witness their consummation of the marriage with the witness described as a quite dreadful affair, Okay. Why did they have to have somebody watch the consummation of that marriage to prevent Roman Catholic rumors? Catholics would have said, this is all about sex. That's what the entire Reformation is about. We don't want to walk in holiness. We want to have the freedom as priests to get married. So they would say a demon showed up, right, when they were together. Or that they never actually consummated the marriage and now they're just living in sin. Or that they invited, you know, some third person to partake in the wedding bed or something like that. So, so to prevent Roman Catholic rumors, they had to have somebody witness that, and he uh, described it as not great. Okay. There's a picture of Catherine von Bora right there. She and Luther had six kids. Hans, named after his dad. Elizabeth, who died in infancy. Magdalena, which is a beautiful name, who died at 13. Martin, named after Martin. Paul and Margaret. His sons, he had three sons, his sons became a lawyer, a private citizen, and a doctor. His wife, Katie, was also called the morning star of the Reformation. If you think back to the lesson last week, that was a name given to John Wycliffe, but uh, she was given this in a, he, he was called the morning star because he is kind of this first light going up into the sky to say, let's reevaluate what the Catholic Church is teaching. It's not the first, but he's a major one that's early on. She's called that because she's seen as this delight, this right hand, if you will, to Martin Luther. And she ran their household well. She would awake each morning at 4 a.m. to manage their children and finances. She was a housewife, a beer brewer, a swine herder, uh, uh, an herbalist, a massage therapist, and a gardener. She also could be sarcastic and sassy. One time when Luther was wallowing around in his depression, she dressed up in a black funeral dress and told Luther that since he was acting like God was dead, that she would join him for the funeral, okay? This caused Luther to get back to work. Luther died on February 18th, 1546, from pulmonary arrest at the age of 62. He left his possessions to his wife despite the fact that it was against Saxon law because she was a woman, Okay? All right, so that is the quick life of Luther. Now let's talk about his legacy. Let's talk about bad things about Luther, and we'll talk about good things about Luther, okay? Remember, all your heroes other than Jesus have these huge sinful flaws, so don't let that surprise you, okay? People are sinners, and so our heroes, we, always, we, we don't need to do what our culture does, which is to fully cancel or fully embrace somebody. We have nuance. We say they're good on this topic, not good on this topic, okay? Same thing is true with Luther. Let's do some negative things about Luther. First of all, he was extremely crass in his speech. Very, very, very Mark Driscoll pre before he started watering everything down. Very crass in his speech. For example, he said that the Pope is as fit to judge spiritual matters as, and I'll just say the word donkey, a donkey is to play a harp. 
Or I like this one, you are a brothel keeper and the devil's daughter in hell. These are the kind of slams that he writes against his opponents. You can actually go online and there is a Martin Luther insult generator that you can spin the little dials and it will come up with his different things that he called people to come up with some long sentence that you can send your buddy, you know, when they're acting like a swine or something. He got drunk a lot, okay? Drinking is not sinful, but drunkenness is sinful. His wife often brewed beer in their bathtub. That's not the problem, but Luther would drink too much of it. Luther confessed, I boggle up food like a bohemian and guzzle beer like a German. God be thanked for it, okay? I actually have a beer stein at my house that has a picture of Martin Luther on it, and it says, sin boldly, okay? Luther is big into the drinking things. One of the first things he got in trouble for, even before all the 95 Thesis stuff, is he was at a bar, a tavern in Dresden, and he got, drank too much, and he started bad-mouthing Thomas Aquinas, Okay? And you don't badmouth Thomas Aquinas. Remember, after Augustine, he's like the premier theologian of the Roman Catholic Church. I also think it's funny that when he's getting drunk, he's not like ranting about politics. He's like, let's talk about theology, right? And so he starts badmouthing Thomas Aquinas and he gets in trouble. He once wrote to a young man struggling with despair and told him to get drunk because that's what Luther did when he was sad. So students like Dr. Luther, I'm struggling with despair. What do I do? And he's like, I just get drunk. That's what I do. Okay, so there's Luther. Another thing that was bad, he allowed an important German, a guy named Philip of Hesse, to take a second wife because his wife wasn't fulfilling him sexually, okay? So this guy, he's this major nobleman, Philip, and he, uh, his wife has kind of given him a snowstorm and not providing for him in the area of intimacy. We'll talk about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And so Luther says, okay, well, if she's not gonna fulfill her role, you can take this other woman. Now, to Luther's credit, he would repent of that later on. He would say that was not the right decision, and the Lutheran tradition ever since then has universally condemned polygamy, concubinage, having a mistress, anything outside of monogamous marriage. But uh, that would become a stain on Luther's reputation. Number four, the German Peasants' War. Okay, we don't have time to talk about the German Peasants' War. It's a huge, interesting part of history. Essentially, though, there are these peasants revolting against the nobility. They're trying to take Luther's idea of being free from the Roman Catholic Church and justification by faith, and they're trying to turn it and make it political, and they start rebelling against the political authorities. Now, what Luther does is he writes a work to to the German nobility. It's called Against the Murderous Thieving Hordes of Peasants, okay? And in that work, Luther is very clear about uh, the Bible's view of just war theory, that Romans 13 is clear that if you are breaking the law, this is really important, I feel like in light of 2020, if you are breaking the law, God is not in your side, you should be killed, okay? The government bears the sword to punish wrongdoers. So the first question you ever have to ask before you get any cultural stuff is, is the person a wrongdoer? Are they doing something that is wrong and illegal? That's the first thing. So Luther writes and he says, if these guys are rebelling, which they are, he tells the German princes to put them down in the streets like dogs. And because of this, 100,000 people will be killed. Now think about the power you have at this point. If you can write a letter and have 100,000 people be killed because of your influence before the internet, before Twitter, whatever it is, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of Germans looking to Martin Luther, but that's gonna become a, uh, a stain on his reputation later on because he could have given more nuance. He could have not just told them, go kill him, but he didn't, and that's gonna come back to haunt him. Number five, intense spiritual attack, okay? Intense spiritual attack. Luther writes a lot about this. There are times where Luther thinks that he sees the devil manifest there in the room with him, okay? There's a lot of those kind of things. He, he would curse at the devil, 
He would make fun of the devil. He would break wind in the direction of the devil. He very much feels attacked by the devil constantly, okay? Constantly, and so he goes through a lot of spiritual attack. Again, he's a very insecure man. He probably is under some real spiritual attack, but he's also turning his brilliant intellect against himself and condemning himself. I know a lot about the doctrine of justification by faith, but I also know the counterarguments, okay? Because I've had to study both sides. So does Luther. And so he's using that to fight himself. Number six, he was anti-Semitic, okay? He was anti-Semitic. Now, but this is important to notice, for spiritual, not racial reasons, okay? So he's not like Hitler. Hitler wants to kill the Jews because of eugenics, because of race-based reasons, okay? If your mom is part Jewish, then you have Jewish blood and you should be killed. That is not how Luther is at all. Luther is not a racist, nor is Luther anti, Luther very much believes in the Jewishness of Jesus. If Jesus is not of the line of David, he's not the Messiah. That's not Luther's issue. Luther doesn't like the Jews, and here's why. He's still wrong. I'm not saying because it's spiritual racism, it's okay. What I'm saying is the reason that he doesn't like them is not because he's just anti-Semitic and he's doing Kristallnacht or something like the Nazis. Rather, in his mind, he believes that he is living at the end of history. Luther reads the book of Revelation and he says, oh, the beast is Rome. The beast is the Pope. Easy. I live at the last period of world history and what is preventing Jesus from coming back? The Jews have not embraced the Messiah. And so Luther is upset with them for a spiritual reason. He's thinking, how can they not see it? If, if, if trying to figure out who the Messiah is is like turning tumblers on a lock, Jesus fits all of those little tumblers. He's of the line of David. He's born in the right town. He's, you know, he, he hits all these kind of, he flees to Egypt to avoid Herod, all these other kind of, he hits all the prophecies. And so for Luther, he's thinking, how can you Jews not see this? If God wanted to scream at you with a megaphone, this is the Jewish Messiah, he's done it. And you've missed it. And because you've missed it, not only are you going to hell and anybody that, you, that follows you, you're preventing the second coming from happening. Jesus can't come back because your bad belief But because of that, he writes a work that the Nazis will go on to quote, even though they don't mean the same thing by Luther, and it's called, very aptly, On the Jews and Their Lies, okay? The way they used to title books was a bit more on the nose than uh, today where we, you know, it's something like, uh, you know, Heavenly Journeys or something like that. Theirs is On the Jews and Their Lies and Why They're the Worst or whatever it is. They just say it, okay? Here's a section from that. He, He says sarcastically, Did I not tell you earlier that a Jew is such a noble, precious jewel that God and all the angels dance when he passes gas? Their synagogue should be burned down and that all who are able toss in sulfur and pitch. It would be good if someone could also throw in some hellfire. That would demonstrate to God our serious resolve and be evidence to all the world that it was in ignorance that we tolerated such houses, meaning houses of worship, in which the Jews have reviled God, our dear creator and father and his son, most shamefully up till now but that we have now given them their due reward, okay? So you see why the Nazis would quote that later, although Luther, again, is no Nazi uh, at all. He wouldn't have agreed with their socialism. He wouldn't have agreed with, uh, you know, the racism, any of that kind of stuff. They're quoting him in a sense out of context, but they're using that harsh language, tear down their synagogues, burn it down. These are deplorable creatures. Let's get rid of them. And they will use that later on during, uh, during the Holocaust, And then another negative thing about Luther, he could be very divisive when he didn't need to be. Luther had a chance to unite the reformers, okay? To to kind of create this justice league and unite these different guys. But he couldn't do it. And so it remained fragmented and fractured. Do you know why? Because Luther would not compromise on his doctrine of communion. 
He agreed with guys like Zwingli on just about everything else, but he wouldn't compromise on his doctrine of communion. And because of that, the two groups were not able to work together. Luther was tremendously unbending on communion. I'll tell you why. Luther's view of communion is very much like Roman Catholic, okay? So the Roman Catholic view is that bread and wine is no longer bread and wine. It changes into physical material, body and blood of Jesus. So there's still two elements. There's two elements, bread and wine. And when you pronounce hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, those things change to these two elements, body and blood, okay? Their substance transes, changes, hence the term transubstantiation, okay? Luther said, that's crazy. But here's what's crazy about it. Not the parts you think is crazy. What's crazy is that the bread and the wine, they don't go away. That's his view. So for Catholics, there's two elements at the end of the, end of the day, body and blood. For Luther, there's four. Bread, wine, body, blood. The bread and the wine don't change to become the body and blood, but rather the body and blood are joined to them, in, through, and around them. The same way you would heat up metal and that glowing heat is all around it, so Jesus is in the elements. But he still held that you materially eat Jesus. Now, why does he hold that? Because for him, he has to have faith be objective. Anything that goes back to him, even his own faith, even justification by faith, which he believed in, that's still too much on him, okay? How do I know that I've believed hard enough? How do I know that I've really accepted Christ? Maybe my heart wasn't fully in it. And so he knows if any part of his salvation is up to him, he's damned. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to make it objective. That's why he holds a view of baptism and a view of communion that we today here at Parkway would not hold to either one, okay? Now, that's why, those are some bad things about Luther. By the way, I realize that I touched the music stand way too much. I'm working on it. I'm getting counseling. I just can't get through it, okay? So I'm not really getting counseling. Okay, so why is Luther a hero? Let me give you a few things. First of all, here's the biggest one. And uh, Jeff's going to talk more about, we're going to have a whole lecture on the Reformation. This is just Luther today. Justification by faith alone. The Catholics, not a lot of them in the Middle Ages because they'd been very much corrupted by semi-Pelagianism, but Catholic theology going back to Augustine holds that you're saved by grace alone, meaning God does the saving. You don't put God in your debt. God and God alone does the saving. But the way that you get the grace is by doing stuff, the sacraments primarily taking communion, being infant baptized, doing penance, going to confession, all these kind of things, that's how you get the grace. For Luther, how do you get the grace? And the answer is just by believing in it. So not only is salvation by grace alone, Augustine already taught that, but it's by faith alone. How do I go from being a sinner to being accepted by God? And here's the answer, there's nothing you can do. You cannot try harder, you cannot be better, you cannot clean yourself up. You can throw yourself on the ground and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he will give you the mercy. This is one of the central tenets of our faith. It is one of the most important. There is no way to do Christianity apart from justification by faith alone. Because if God gives you grace only when you've done your best, how do you know when you've done your best? Couldn't you always pray more? Couldn't you give more money to the poor? Couldn't you have better thoughts? Sure you could, so you're going to hell. For Luther to say, I'm a sinner, God have mercy on me. Like the man in the Bible who beats his chest and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the text says that that man, not the Pharisee, went home justified that day. So Luther, that's gonna be the big thing. Jeff will talk more about that with the Reformation. Great quotes I've got throughout this thing on Luther. If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. There you go. Justification by faith alone. Number two, scripture as the sole ultimate authority in Christianity. Luther and the reformers were not against some of the things that a lot of Protestants are against today. They were not against creeds. They all wrote creeds. They were not against confessions. They all wrote confessions. They were not against philosophy. They all studied philosophy. Luther hated philosophy, but he still used it 
But, but because by philosophy, he meant Aquinas. He meant Aristotle in the universities. He wasn't against like logic and argumentation, okay? But they realize that the sole ultimate authority in Christian life, there are other helpful things, but the ultimate authority, the thing that stands above everything else and judges everything and is judged by none is the Bible alone. Another great quote from Luther, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, that's his buddy Philip, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing, the word did it all. Number three, all people have equal access to God in Christ. That's huge. You see, in Roman Catholic thinking, there's you guys, the gross laity, and then there's me, the clergy. And look at this big gap between us. That's why we did this, you see? For Luther, he says, that's ridiculous. The difference between a pastor and a layperson is one of vocation, and that's it. You guys have the same access to Christ as a priest, as the pope, as a bishop. As a, they're, they're, the difference between me and you is my job. That's it. In fact, most of you are probably holier than I am, okay? It is the priesthood of all believers. You are a priest. Do you see yourself that way? God sees you that way. You are a saint. Do you see yourself that way? God sees you that way. That's the identity of every Christian. Saints aren't just especially holy people. They're you because you know Christ. Priests just aren't people that preach. They're you because you know Christ, okay? It is the priesthood of the believer that all men and women are spiritual priests before God and that you don't have to have this weird separation between the clergy and the laity. There used to be railing that they would put between you know, the priest and the people to take communion, to show that separation. They got rid of that railing, okay? They moved the preaching of the word to the center of the stage instead of just being off in the corner or something like that. And so uh, we will see, uh, again, more of that later on. Listen to this one. This one might really encourage you. If you have a job that you don't love, you have a job that you hate and it just feels like it's monotonous and you think the only things that matter are like when you're reading your Bible and praying and you don't realize that you can actually do everything that you do to the glory of God, look at this quote. The life and the work of the average person has spiritual value. There is really no difference between layman and priest, princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals as they call them, except that of office and work. A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade and yet they are all alike consecrated priest and bishop, bishops and everyone by means of his own work or office must benefit and serve every other. That in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community even as all the members of the body serve one another. Why is it that in Europe, the places that become Protestant flourish, uh, flourish uh, economically and the places that remain Catholic do not flourish? And it is directly linked to both Luther and Calvin, okay? Their view of work being holy allows you now, your job has purpose. You're not just re-roofing a house, you're doing it for the glory of God. You're not just sending an email, you're doing it for the glory of God. Capitalism begins at the Reformation, mainly with Calvin. Capitalism will begin at the Reformation. Why am I so anti-Marxist? Not just because I'm an American, because I'm a Christian and I'm a Protestant, okay? Your work and your ability to earn capital so that you can bless other people directly comes out of the Reformation. Mankind is not born wounded, but is born spiritually dead. Luther's gonna re-emphasize this, okay? Luther's gonna hold to a strong form of double predestination. You are not just born sick and therefore need God to give you grace. You are born dead and so God must give you new life. That's how you know God does all the saving. Well, I chose Jesus, dead people choose nothing. I walked an altar, people who are dead do not spiritually, physically they might, spiritually walk anything. You are dead, so God must give you life, that's called regeneration, spiritual birth, and then he's the one that causes you to have faith. Oh yeah, Zach, but I have faith. You have faith that God gave you after he made you not dead. You didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. 
A return to Augustine's doctrine of predestination. Luther will hold that. At the end of the day, the one who's responsible for whether or not someone goes to heaven or hell is God, not us. If that bothers you, we have a bunch of lessons on predestination. Election and reprobation, I would encourage you to listen to. It's a difficult topic, but what I just said will set you free. If God literally has just said, I'm gonna love Zach and he can't screw it up, that's great news because God doesn't fail. If God has said, "Mm, I'm gonna leave it up to Zach to see whether or not he's gonna be faithful. Well, I will see you in hell because you'll be there too. If you can lose your salvation, then you will. But if God keeps it, then you're safe, okay? The church is not an institution, but wherever the gospel is purely preached. Now, that's really important, okay? Because Luther doesn't believe that you can split the church. In one sense, the Reformation is a failure because it led to a divided church, okay? It wasn't reformed, which was the hope. There was a divided church. So what do the reformers do? Because they know, they don't believe that they're coming up with new stuff, by the way. You, You can't be, Jesus promises that the gates of Hades won't overcome his church. They don't think they're starting a new church. They think that it's the Catholics that broke off and that they're simply going back to the early church. That's why they're quoting Augustine so much, okay? So they're gonna redefine church. The Catholics have said the church is the institution of the Roman Catholic Church as bishops ordain other bishops, okay? Luther and Calvin and these guys, they're gonna say that's not the definition of the church. The definition of the church is where the gospel is purely preached and where the sacraments are purely taken. So what makes you part of the church, this is important, is your theology, is your doctrine, is your conversion, not the institution that you belong to. Keep that in mind. Especially those of you that are going to the, if anybody's going to the membership class later. Number nine, a theology of the cross. What does that mean? Luther, a big element in his theology is what is called a theology of the cross. Here's what he means by that. All theologians love the cross. That's not what he means. Here's what he means by that. He separates out what he calls the theologian of glory from the theologian of the cross. And here's what he means by those things. The theologian of glory is the one who basically tries to make God in their own image. What they mean by power, they assume about God. What they mean by goodness, they assume about God. They sit back in their ivory tower and they speculate on what it means for God to be God. That's a theologian of glory. Luther contrasts that with what he thinks is correct, which is what he calls a theology of the cross. What he means by that is the same thing we're studying in 1 Corinthians, that God turns earthly values on their head, that the strong becomes weak, that God becomes man, that if you really wanna know what it looks like to follow the God of the Bible, you don't look to the medieval Catholic theologians speculating, you look at the cross. At the cross, you see divine love and you see divine justice. So Luther uses this idea really simply to say this, that when we think of strength, we don't think of a crucified Messiah. When we think of power, we don't think of serving the poor. Our human notions of what's great, he calls the theologian of glory, the one who's just reading his values back onto God. The theology of the cross, rather, starts with the definitive event of the crucified Son of God and builds a theology out from that. Simply to say, if I can say it in one sentence, is Luther's theology of the cross is that the gospel turns worldly values on its head and what we typically value, God doesn't, and what we typically shame, God values. Okay, that's the theology of the cross. Next, and this is why I've included that little, uh, little section there at the end of this packet the distinction between law and gospel. If I can get you to read one thing on Luther, I want you to read that little sermon I've included in that packet, okay? For the online version, if people are watching at home, I've included the link that you can, uh, you, you can go to it in the notes. 
Out of all the things I could have you read by Luther, there's a bunch and they're all incredible. This would be a great starting point because this is gonna get into one of the central themes of Luther's theology and it's the difference between law and gospel. Here's what he means by those terms. He doesn't mean the exact same thing that the apostle Paul means, okay? Theologians are free to use terms. They have to define it. Luther defines it. Here's what he means. Law is anything in the Bible that God commands you to do. Gospel is anything that God does for you. The Bible contains both. It commands things of you. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't have lustful thoughts, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A lot of commands, impossible commands, like be perfect, right? When you read those and you hear those, it will crush you. It will make you fall into despair and that's its job. The law doesn't save you. The law's job is to shut you up under hell. It's to shut you up under condemnation. That's the law. The gospel though, after you're already at that place of despair, where where you just feel like you're going to hell, if you last one more second, you're gonna be under the wrath of God. The gospel comes in and says, but Jesus did all this for you. Do all these things or you will be condemned. But God, I can't do that. Every time I read the Bible, I feel the condemnation of the law. Right, again, he doesn't mean Old Testament law, he just means God's commands. When I read that and it says, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, I'm like, oops. When the Bible says to, uh, to give all that you have and sell to the poor or to you know, do nothing out of selfish ambition but to consider others as better than yourself, I think I'm better than a lot of people. I read that and I have condemnation. I read that because it shuts me up under sin. Be perfect, Zach. Every page of scripture, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect. And if you're not perfect, you'll go to hell. And then the gospel comes and says, but Jesus has done it for you and you're not going to hell. God doesn't hate you. He doesn't have wrath towards you. He loves you. You're forgiven. You're adopted. Everything is okay. That is Luther's law and gospel distinction. The Bible gives commands which necessarily condemn you because again, some of you think, well, Zach, I can keep some of God's laws. God demands that you keep them with a perfect heart. So if you don't cheat on your wife, great, but you want to, you've still sinned to some extent. What Luther's gonna do is he's gonna say the gospel has to do it all. So what you do when you preach the gospel is you condemn people and you shut them up under sin and then when they're about to die, they're just gasping for air at the end of the sermon, you give them the gospel and their just hearts are set free, right? Like the old adage, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. And so with this, you get into Luther's famous phrase, simul justus et peccator, that Christians are simultaneously justified and a sinner, okay? You have to keep both in mind. So for Luther, all bad theology comes when you mix up law and gospel. When you try to find your hope in fulfilling God's commands, you'll feel condemned, okay? All bad theology comes from mixing those two. You gotta keep them in separate categories. And that's also true with how God sees you. Is a Christian a sinner? The answer is yes and no. If by sinner, do you mean that we still practically commit sins every day of our life? Absolutely, we're sinners. We are wretched and depraved. But if by sinner, do you mean the way God sees us ultimately? Well, then no, we're not sinners, we're saints. A Christian is simultaneously justified and a sinner. Is it, what is a Christian? They're a sinner who hates God and still walks in sin, but from God's perspective, because they're in Christ, they are not a sinner and they are a saint and God loves them and everything's gonna be okay. So again, I would encourage you to read that short little uh, sermon that I've included there on more of the distinction between law and gospel. And then lastly, his focus on walking in grace. One of the reasons I like Luther is I feel like he's the first honest person in church history. Let me tell you why I say that. Guys like Augustine will confess their sins in the confessions, but their sins that they used to commit, 
He's fine writing about his sins when he was lost, but now he's so holy. Luther is one of the first guys to say, I'm still not very holy. He's one of the first guys to say, not just do I not commit adultery, but I can't not want to. You see, everybody today says, oh God, I want to obey you. I just, I I struggle. Luther's like, I don't want to obey you. And Luther's actually being honest because God and the gospel and these things affect not just our actions, but our hearts. So his focus on walking in grace is excellent. Let me just give you three quotes here that are great and we'll be done. God wants us to keep the commandments with total commitment. He's not a libertine and diligence, but listen to this. But not to put our trust in them when we have done so or despair if we have not. Luther is not saying don't be holy. Luther's super holy, despite his foul mouth and his drunkenness. Other than that, he's actually, I mean, he'll spend four hours a day in prayer. He studies the Bible. He's, I mean, he's very, he's very much of, uh, very into piety. His whole thing, though, is don't pursue it like if you fail, God's mad at you, or if you succeed, you're awesome. That is confusing law and gospel. If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary but a true mercy. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger, okay? He's not actually encouraging you to sin. He's saying, own up to how terrible you are. Stop trying to be, I'm a little sinner. I just need a little bit of Jesus. He's like, no, no, no. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. If you're a big sinner, take heart because you've got a big savior, okay? And then lastly, one of my favorite quotes, talking about a spiritual attack, and then we'll be done. Whenever the devil harasses you, seek the company of men or drink more or joke and talk nonsense, or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport, recreate ourselves, and even sin a little to spite the devil, so that we leave him no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink, and write freely, just because you tell me not to. Let's pray to end our lesson on Luther. Almighty God, we thank you for figures like this, who though he's just a man and he's just a sinner has also been really helpful. I pray that you would help us take the good things and leave the bad. Luther has some issues. We pray that we wouldn't walk in some of his sins, whether it be drunkenness or fouled mouth or whatever it is. We pray that we would develop a better doctrine of sanctification. Luther talks a lot about justification, but not much about sanctification. So would you help us uh, hold these two things in tension that we are simultaneously justified in a sinner? Help us in our relationship to you see that we are saints and perfect and righteous. But then when we are tempted to look at ourselves to think we're awesome, realize how depraved our hearts still are. That we don't reach full sanctification this side of eternity. We don't even reach mostly being sanctified this side of eternity. Help us keep both things in mind. We thank you for figures like this that you've used despite the fact that they're sinful and we pray that you would use us despite the fact that we are sinful and there are some big gaps in our theology as well. We love you and thank you in Christ's name, amen. You guys are dismissed.